episode 73, part Dumpty Dum, in the hut at Damoy Point. Kyle's banging out some photographs. And I'll launch into my script. On the 7th of March, Bird sent a six-man, four-dog team depot party south to begin laying fuel and food caches at 20-mile intervals along the proposed route of the Polar Flight. With the Eleanor bowling turned back, Bird needed to watch the Avgas fuel consumption so as to ensure he had enough in hand to fill the Ford Trimotor the following summer, and so the entire depot program relied on canine power. The sledges marked their route with red flags Bird hoped would help not only the sledges, but also the aviators navigate across the barrier. Walden stayed at Little America. A life spent largely with no company but his dogs didn't prepare him for the cloistered existence of Little America, and he frequently quarrelled with Bird. Walden, being one of the few men with the gall and the cantankerous disregard of repercussions, likely born of hard-won experience and advanced years, would do so. Illness and death among the dogs on the transit to New Zealand shook Walden badly, and Bird and Brophy, no one I'd trust to measure my merit, deemed him problematic because of his willingness to stand up to Bird. In addition, Walden and Vaughan, the leader of the three Harvard dog drivers, didn't get along, Walden finding the younger man abrasive and headstrong, and Vaughan finding the older man hidebound and abrasive. Tensions between them became so bad that Walden made death threats and Vaughan took those threats sufficiently seriously that he began bedding down anywhere other than his own bunk to thwart any attack arising while he slept. The depot party struggled in poor weather and in their first encounters with crevasses, but managed to lay depots at the designated 20 and 40 mile mark, caching the material slated for the 60 mile depot at the 40 mile when they ran out of marker flags. Bird and Owen fought over the copy sent to the New York Times, recounting this first significant dog sledge journey. Bird refusing to send anything Owen wrote without first vetting it and toning down the heroic slant Owen gave his reports, diminishing the extent to which other people's exploits might detract from his own cachet, running as a motif throughout Bird's interactions with the journalist. McKinley's photographs of the Rockefeller Mountains excited Gould's geological fervour and he requested an opportunity to fly out and fulfil the expedition's scientific mandate. With the first flights of the expedition squared away, see you later. McKinley's photographs of the Rockefeller Mountains excited Gould's geological fervour and he requested an opportunity to fly out and fulfil the expedition's scientific mandate. With the first flights of the expedition squared away, some new names on maps allocated and the pieces of the polar flight falling into place, Bird felt reticent about any further forays, but Gould's argument that they hadn't yet done anything scientific won him over. On the 7th of March, Balkan flew Gould and June to a promising-looking site in the Fokker Universal to make a comprehensive scientific survey of the range, the first recorded use of an aircraft specifically to position a scientific party. Landing on the Meltwater Ice Lake at the foot of the Rockefeller Range too late in the day for Gould to start in on the theodolite readings, the trio weighed the Universal down with blocks of ice and hit the sleeping bags. Strong winds the following morning moved the aircraft and they frantically cut more snow blocks to make a wall in front of the airframe, to place on the skis, 
and to guide the aircraft down to. Balkan climbed into the cockpit to read the airspeed indicator, seeing a consistent 60 knots with occasional 90 knot gusts, placing the wind well within inside the range of speeds at which the Universal left the ground under normal operations. The wind eased the following day and Balkan sketched the mountains while Gould and June made and recorded the theodolite readings. On the 14th, Balkan made his pre-flight checks preparatory to flying back to Little America, but the wind increased, the airspeed indicator showing a consistent 100 knots with gusts of up to 120. No one went inside the aircraft again, the men huddling in their tent and hoping for the best while the wind ablated the snow blocks holding their machine down. During the night, the Fokker blew away. The morning light revealed it about a mile downwind, upright at least. Balkan made to head to it to check the damage, but the wind blew him off his feet and he reached the airframe at high speed on his arse. He managed to arrest his tobogganing as he drew level with the Fokker and he quickly realised the Universal would never fly again. The undercarriage having smashed, the propeller bent and sundry smaller breakages and warpings rendering the machine worthless but for the fuel still in its unruptured tanks. The wreckage is still there. Dog teams retrieved the engine and instruments in 1934 on Bird's idea. Welcome! Oh, somebody else is in there already. Episode 73, Tumpty Plus One. Port Lockeroy. Pardon me. In Bransfield House. The wreckage is still there. Dog teams retrieved the engine and instruments in 1934 on Bird's idea that they might sell the salvaged material in the USA. And Peter Cleary, Scott based field safety officer during my time there and guest interviewee in episode 23 of Ice Coffee, spotted the wreckage from Mount Nilsson while leading a University of Canterbury surveying team in 1987. They headed onto the frozen lake for a look. With the expensive bits already salvaged half a century earlier and the wind and blown snow working their ablative wonders on the wreck, all they found was the wooden wing structure, the skis that Balkan made for the undercarriage and the welded steel tube framing of the fuselage, a Fokker design motif well into the 1930s. 140 nautical miles from Little America, Balkan considered skiing home, but Gould and June lacked his experience and likely wouldn't fare well on the trail. With six weeks of food in hand, they sat tight, hoping the lack of news arriving at Little America would prompt an investigation. June reassembled the radio set as best he could, and while they could hear Little America communicating with New York regarding the missing team, they couldn't contribute to the dialogue. Reassuringly, the Little America radio operators sent an hourly message that the Fairchild would come in search of the Fokker crew as soon as the weather allowed, and that Walden was heading east in charge of seven dog teams tasked with search and rescue, departing Little America on the 15th of March, very late in the season to take dogs out on the barrier, particularly with at least two weeks of hauling in the offing. The necessary break in the weather came on the 19th of March, getting quite late in the season to be faffing about flying over the barrier, but needs must when the devil drives. In this instance, Dean Smith drove the Fairchild, with Malcolm Hansen on the radio and Bird as supernumerary. Bird's presence on the flight confounds me. The Fairchild, featuring the same 425 horsepower Wasp engine as the Fokker, constituted a goer, 
but the small fuselage precluded everyone flying back in one go when the expedition leader placed himself aboard. Bird's desire to take part in the flight delayed an effort already delayed by the difficulty Dean Smith experienced in starting the engine. While Smith sat in the Fairchild, its engine warmed up and ready to go, Bird sat in his room through Monday morning in a funk, allegedly praying, the physician eventually attending on him with three bottles of medicinal brandy. At 1600 hours, Bird walked out to the aircraft, pale-faced and stiff-legged, and climbed aboard, and the only reason I can see that he would impose himself on the flight when the practicalities of the situation and his aversion to flying indicated against it was to ensure he wasn't saddled with blame if someone died during a heroic rescue mission. If he stayed back and someone or everyone died, Bird would look a poor example of leadership. If he or everyone died, he would hold hero martyr status, and while too dead to enjoy it, he seemed to value his legacy more than the average punter. If he and everyone else lived, he would be part of a heroic day-saving team, even if his presence put more people at more risk for longer than would be the case if he stayed at Little America. November 20th, 2018, the 90th anniversary of Sir Hubert Wilkins' first heavier-than-air flight in Antarctica. I'm on the shores of HO, or Barrientos Island. There's some Gentoo penguins, some chinstrap penguins transiting the beach. And I'm just sitting here, waiting for the tide to come in. As Smith taxied to the runway, Bird yelled for him to stop, claiming the ice looked too rough to allow a takeoff. Smith argued the point. His experience, or Bird's unwillingness to look a coward in the light cast by Smith's willingness to press on, finally seeing the commander give his grudging permission to get the Fairchild in the air. In the failing light, the occupants of the Fairchild couldn't spot the stranded geology party until Balkan broke open a smoke flare, using the pyrotechnic component within to show a brief flame which stood out against the shadowed ice, sufficient to draw Smith's attention. Turning to make an approach, Smith found his efforts hampered as Bird, spying a mountain range in front of the aircraft, tried to grab the controls over Smith's shoulders. According to Smith, Bird was screaming and crying hysterically that they were going to hit the mountain, and it was only when he unbuckled his harness and landed a blow on Bird that he regained control of the Fairchild. Ordering Hanson to hold the commander back, Smith landed on the rough ice surface, the flattest and smoothest area marked out with flags by Balkan and June, and the wind direction indicated with a T in the surface snow. On the ice and reassembling his sang-froid, Bird ordered Balkan and June aboard while he and Hansen stayed on site with Gould with a tent and a radio set to replace those damaged by the storm and the wreck of the Fokker, and fresh supplies of food. Smith flew the Fairchild back to Little America. On the 22nd of March, Smith and June returned in the Fairchild to collect Gould, Bird and Hansen. Gould managed to get his geological samples aboard but had to leave his tools behind for weight considerations. Flying back toward Little America, the aviators signalled the dog teams struggling toward the wreck site and still 40 nautical miles short to return to base. The dog teams received their orders to turn around gratefully, as the weather was really starting to put its teeth into the frostbiting process and the dogs weren't faring well, some returning to Little America as sledge passengers, which is better than the alternative, but still an indication they were working in the most marginal of conditions. In their efforts to get home without dying, the sledge party set a new daily distance record. 
No one in the expedition expected aviation in Antarctica to prove a doddle, but the loss of the Fokker and the difficulty experienced in extracting three men from a site relatively close to Little America pushed home exactly how far this project stretched the technology available at the time. With the Fokker wrecked, With the Fokker wrecked, Bird lost what little flexibility the aviation plans once featured. Smith later wrote that the Fairchild was only made ready for the relief of Gould's geological party at his insistence because Bird felt unwilling to put at risk his pole flight by putting yet more of his aviation resources into making good on an already substantial loss. He could have decided the lateness in the summer working season posed too great a risk to anyone in the Fairchild, but the need to return home without losing a single man and Smith's alleged strident urging swung the decision in favour of an aviation solution. Better to risk a second plane than to risk the lives of the three men at the far end of the operation. Smith and Bird weren't getting along, but as the second most experienced long-distance flyer in the expedition, and a well-liked member of the crew, Bird daren't alienate the aviator to the extent he might have liked. Thank you, Santi. The relief from the Rockefeller Mountains was the last flying for that season. The aircraft went into their hangars, comprising snow-blocked walls surmounting the holes from which the snowblocks were cut. The hangars received enough heating to allow the men to work in spite the outside temperatures of negative 40 or negative 50 degrees Celsius, but unlike R2-D2, they were careful to keep things below freezing to avoid flooding themselves out or bringing the walls down around their ears. Balkan and the aircraft engineers busied themselves with projects, among them re-plumbing the Ford trimotor such that the co-pilot could pump fuel around from tank to tank to better trim the aircraft. Balkan kept a small slide rule in his pocket for working out engineering equations while at the workbench, and a textbook on aerodynamics in his knapsack in case he ever got pinned anywhere by the weather. He applied himself to the fuel consumption data of the Ford trimotor calculating and drawing up the fuel consumption curves the pilots would need to work to at the various stages of the pole flight. While he was at it, he offered to work up equivalent data he and Bennett generated for the Josephine Ford in case Bird should be interested in a copy for his files. I don't know if Balkan brought this up to Needle Bird or if he was sincerely offering what he thought comprised a favour, but Bird's reaction suggests the commander thought it was the former. In Balkan's recounting, the two men were outdoors for one of Bird's personal chats when Balkan brought the topic up. Bird raged that Balkan shouldn't run any calculations regarding the North Pole flight. In Balkan's words, he flew into a rage and told me that if I ever at any time monkeyed around with the figures of that plane, he would sure teach me something else, and for me to forever stay away from any of those figures. On seeing Balkan fiddling with his slide rule, Bird snapped, Forget about that slide rule. From now on, you stick to flying. I'll do the figuring. Any lingering uncertainty Balkan might have felt about Bird's North Pole flight departed during that encounter. The final winter sunset at Little America's latitude fell below the horizon on the 17th of April, and the 42 residents settled into their routines for the long dark. Breakfast at 0800, dinner at 1700, food available for snacks and lunch at personal discretion, and everyone taking their turn at the housekeeping duties. Snow shoveling, feeding the snow melter, and hauling coal. The winter diversions comprised the 3,000 volume library, card games, music, and Saturday night radio calls to and from home. 
The radio stations WGY Schenectady and KDKA Pittsburgh took turns providing a weekly radio program dedicated to the Little America denizens. Their signals boosted for an hour as politicians and celebrities sent their greetings. Notably, Harpo Marx broke his stage and screen persona silence to send greetings. The radio sets received the spoken word transmissions well enough, but music turned up in the speakers as undecipherable noise. But the home front efforts were largely appreciated by the recipients half a world away. Other diversions beguiled the winter hours. Brathen built a scale model of the city of New York. Antarctic University comprised a regular schedule of poorly attended lectures on geology, navigation and aeronautics. Variety shows and movies provided weekly distractions in the mess hall. Balkan taught boxing in a gymnasium dug alongside one of the tunnels, and demonstration boxing matches between he and Svea Strom proved the weekly entertainment highlight. Strom was also one of the few proficient musicians to winter at Little America, and his accordion got more of a workout than the donated pianos. Dice, cards, and AC Doocy, a variant on backgammon I'm quite fond of, shout out to Jeremy, soaked up many hours, and Bird displayed a zeal for contract bridge almost as maniacal as his attention to his public persona, often dragging McKinley and Harrison away from company or activities they found more enjoyable to partner up for a rubber, which isn't as fun as it sounds. Those inclined to gamble on their games placed bets in cigarettes, but given the surfeit donated by Lucky Strike and available freely to anyone who wanted to smoke, it was more a way of keeping score than a path to riches as per the chocolate economy at Cape Denison in 1912. I have seen a tobacco economy at play while on a vessel at sea for longer than expected, leading to a severe shortage, and I never want any part in such nicotine deprivation fueled emotional turmoil again. I'm glad for the sake of all involved that Little America never came close to a cigarette shortage. Bird observed Sunday as the Christian Sabbath, but no one held any formal service. While Little America wasn't particularly Christian in its observance, Benny Roth received a lot of stick for being Jewish. Historical prejudices playing out at a small scale at high latitudes. Sunday evenings, the mess served as cinema, the National Film Review Board having donated 75 carefully curated prints of morally uplifting and profanity and controversy-free films. An especially important poker game played out on Sunday nights. The four biggest losers paying their debt by breaking up the shit-sickles of snap-frozen faeces that reached seatward from the bottom of the latrine pits. According to Dean Smith, you never saw closer to the vest poker played anywhere. The Night Watch, arranged to an alphabetical roster, ran in two shifts, from lights out to midnight and from midnight to breakfast. Night watchmen recorded auroral activity, but didn't keep the fires burning through the night, as was the case at previous winter quarters. Concerned about the dangers of stale air, Bird ordered that the fires be allowed to die down and that the hut doors be propped open at 2300 hours. The accounts of the fog forming in the interface between the cold, dry air, pushing in from outside, and the warm, moist air of the huts. An inexorable wedge pushing across the floors and gradually rising to fill the rooms some evocative shit. The second shift of the night watch lit the fires and closed the doors in time to take the worst off the chill as people rose and dressed in for the day. With all the water arising from melted neve, people tended not to bathe much and washed their clothing less often, if at all. 
dry washing is the nice name given to the horrible but common, at least among my colleagues in remote field sites, practice of wearing clothes until they're filthy, then swapping them for an alternate set until those clothes are filthier, at which point the original set are reinstated because they're clean by comparison, and so on until the dissolution of all pretensions of dignity. Martin Ron spent most of the winter sewing, working up clothing in tents, the latter proving so successful that he and Balkan marketed their collaborative design as the Balkan Ron tent in Norway for many years after the expedition. Balkan also spent some time refining the Nansen sledges, shaving weight and decreasing the runner friction coefficient by application of his engineering knowledge applied in a thorough scientific test series. Bird seems an odd bird, even by my standards, and most people I know consider me an odd bird. The demands of bird... West Point Island in the Falklands. Bird seems an odd bird, even by my standards, and most people I know consider me an odd bird. The demands of leadership in remote situations automatically set a person in a leadership role apart from their fellows. Bird found himself further distanced from his men by the modes established by his privileged Virginian upbringing and by his officer status in the Navy. He wasn't a man of the people and he couldn't afford to try to be, both for the sake of his expedition and because it was likely not to have gone well, because rich and privileged people just can't swear properly. Alexei Sale identified that as the key delineation between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat in the late 1980s, and I'm yet to see that metric fail. Some blue blood will join a crowd and test the water with a few contributions about sport and beer, and then put their bollocks where their fuck knuckles should be, and everyone but them knows they've blown any credibility they might have hoped to garner. I can't discuss sport or beer, but I learned to swear from soldiers and fishers, and I know where to put my asshole. And I should note here, for anyone who takes umbrage at profanity, that some of the nastiest bigots I've ever encountered espoused their hateful ideology without a single cuss word. Swearing isn't inherently good or bad, it's just frowned on by the Victorian era, living on in Victorian era minds. Bird also distanced himself from his men physically, establishing a private bedroom and office, keeping himself and his stupid little dog Igloo away from the hoi polloi. Bird's physical and social aloofness led expedition members to turn to Larry Gould more readily for decisions and advice. In a naval setting, this would stand as business as usual, subordinates dealing with their direct superiors rather than the commander. But the civilian nature of the expedition made Bird's military mode a poor fit for the circumstances, and he lost a lot of respect for the extensive time he spent in his room with his stupid little dog, Igloo. Gould also became the conduit through which Bird would express unhappiness with an individual. <coughs> the unhappy second-in-command delivering proxy rebukes where Bird was happy enough to deliver praise in person. Bird shared with Scott that mercurial property that expressed itself in outbursts of anger over frustrations arising from elements beyond his control, and most denizens of Little America found themselves on the receiving end of a tirade that seemed to come from, and return to, nowhere during the long winter months. Noticing the gradual erosion of his traction with the men working under him, and concerned to the point of paranoia that some individuals, Balkan, Owen and Gould foremost among them, sought to undermine his authority at every step, Bird took to having an evening walk and a quiet chat with individuals he thought he could trust. He asked them if they were loyal. If they said they were, he asked if they would swear an oath of loyalty, 
affording them an induction into a Masonic-style secret society tasked with maintaining the integrity of the expedition by reporting any seditious activity or discussions they became aware of. Bird's Loyal Legion weren't supposed to know which other expedition members were sworn in as their brother members, so instead of a Masonic Lodge, it was more of a wheel of relationships, unconnected other than by Bird lying at its hub. While Bird invited Balkan to join his own Masonic Lodge in the USA, Balkan numbered among those never made privy to the existence of the Loyal Legion. Boy Scout, Paul Seipel, reacted as you would expect of the archetypal Boy Scout. Writing about his high regard for the commander, which he thought could reach no higher, ascending to even greater altitudes on learning of the sacred mission with which Bird entrusted the Loyal Legion. I want to like Paul Seipel, I really do, but he keeps coming up chumps with that sort of twaddle. He makes absolutely Cherry Garrard's opinion of Robert Falcon Scott appear positively cynical. I quote here the oath that members of the Loyal Legion signed. I solemnly swear on my word of honour and by all that I reverence and hold sacred and without hesitation or mental reservation that I will divulge to no one in any way and in no manner anything whatever in connection with the Loyal Legion that whenever you call for my assistance in the name of the Loyal Legion I will take such action as you request that I will not divulge the request to anyone just as I will hold as a confidential and sacred matter anything whatever connected with the Loyal Legion nor will I by any act whatever make an effort to learn the names of the other members of the fraternity, that in case of disloyalty displayed in a crowd when you are present, I will act in response to a predetermined signal and a predetermined course of action, that I will strive just as faithfully after the expedition ends to maintain its spirit of loyalty and will oppose any traitors to it then as now. In short, I, Paul Seipel, or whichever chump was signing on, will protect this expedition against traitors from within. To all of this I swear, so help me God. Bird's own oath in reply ran, I solemnly swear by the same oath that you have taken that I will hold your pledged loyalty as a sacred trust and will pledge you my loyalty. And I will also, in evoking through you the spirit of the expedition to help save it from malcontents, agitators or traitors, that I will at the same time do whatever is practicable to save these men from themselves and from ruining their own lives. Bird requested after the expedition that members of the Loyal Legion destroy all written record of the group, presciently anticipating the sort of disdain I'm heaping on it here, should anyone not toasty as fuck learn about it after the fact. I'm in Godthul. We've got some South Georgia pipits, some fur seals, some elephant seals. It's all going down nice. Bird requested after the expedition that members of the Loyal Legion destroy all written record of the group, presciently anticipating the sort presciently anticipating the sort of disdain I'm heaping on it here, should anyone not toasty as fuck learn about it after the fact. Where Gould, Vaughan, Balkan and Owen recognised Bird as insecure, Gould writing, 
I think I have never known a more unhappy man or a man less secure, a man more suspicious of the motives of those around him. Seiple's diary entry about the oath taking comes across as the literary version of my Kelpie puppy wetting the floor with excitement at my returning home. And Pete Damas picked up the peppy lost on being made the curfew monitor when the honour fell upon him. Chips Gould and Joe de Ganal are also known recruits, and authors think other likely candidates include Lofgren, Goodale and Bubier. Clark knocked back the proposal at the first hurdle, and I like the man for his lack of curiosity at Bird's antics. It takes a strong will and a level head to hold no interest in secrets offered as a reward for jumping through a particular hoop. Any secret someone's willing to share with you on a priori conditions isn't a secret. It's information being unfairly withheld from someone for personal gain. Someone suggested, and some cite the idea as coming from Balkan and others give credit to Black, that the entire expedition try to reassure their commander that they had his back. Only Bird seems to have divided the camp into loyal and disloyal factions, and the general positive reception of the proposal saw a plaque featuring Balkan's paintings of local activities and inscribed with the Pledge of Fealty by Bubia, in addition to the signatures of everyone present, presented to Bird. Cynics, like me, think Bird planted the idea for the scheme and the similar loyalty pledge most crew members took after the expedition. The plaque did temporarily put Bird's mind at ease, mostly. Owen still irked him, and that the journalist didn't report on the plaque and the associated presentation ceremony kicked off the next round of Bird's paranoic thinking. Balkan was increasingly on Bird's radar from this point onward. Smith recounts that while Balkan generally kept his counsel vocally, his expression and demeanour spoke volumes. If Balkan didn't respect someone, he made no effort to hide it. He already knew his commander wasn't up to much as a pilot or navigator, and Bird couldn't ski and didn't hold any interest in learning to. Their time in close company gave Balkan further insights into Bird's flaws as compared to his role model, Roald Amundsen, and Bird must have known how he looked to the ultra-competent Norwegian. As I prepare my notes for these episodes, Donald Trump is calling traitor on any number of people and lamenting that he didn't receive oaths of loyalty from others who don't owe him the time of day, let alone their fealty. It strikes me that the people who use the word loyalty the most are the people who deserve it least. If you have to ask for my loyalty, you've clearly not earned it off the bat, and therefore don't warrant it post hoc. If you've already got my loyalty, you'll know it, because I'll demonstrate it in ways that no signed affidavit could equally assure you of. Where Bird came across as faintly messianic in recounting the French airman getting to his feet after years as a war invalid, the paranoia he exhibited during his first winter in Antarctica took on the full martyred saviour aspect, complete but for stigmata. It's an unsettling realisation that everyone thinks they're a victim.
It's an unsettling realisation that everyone thinks they're a victim. Where for victims it's true, the internal narrative is no less compelling for the people doing the victimisation. The premises are warped and the logic twisted, but the world's worst oppressors, history's most violent fascists, the most narcissistic presidents called Donald Trump any nation ever experienced, all thought they were the injured party, righteously making a stand to defend themselves against unrighteous slings and arrows. Bird really played up the hurt fawn card in his white anting of people he felt stood to dent his leadership, his reputation, and I'm increasingly starting to suspect most importantly, his legacy in some way. Megalomaniac is a word that comes to mind. Perhaps recognising how insecure his Antarctic loyalty gambit might make him appear after the fact, Bird wrote to its members after the expedition asking that they destroy any existing correspondence featuring mention of the Loyal Legion and to omit it from any future record. Clearly this didn't work, or I wouldn't be telling you about it now, chipping away at the precious legacy Bird wanted to present you. It adds to the pathetic wanker quotient, and if it weren't for the fact that Bird severely dented the careers and mental health of some of the people he trod on in his attempts to polish the legend he wanted to become, I'd feel sorry for him. Each of the pilots went on private walks with Bird, and each, other than Balkan, received tantalising hints that they might be named the chief pilot for the pole flight. Each of the mechanics similarly heard from their commander that they were responsible for the success of the flight, and that they should immediately report any hint of dissent. <coughs> Hi Sandy. This was a whaling station. They're part of the fire Each of the mechanics similarly heard from their commander that they were responsible for the success of the flight and that they should immediately report any hint of dissent or sedition to Bird. This meant that instead of working as a team, everyone looked askance at everyone else and heaps of unnecessary bickering broke out. Balkan found his team falling apart and had to assert his authority as leader of the aviation contingent in order to get the mechanics to stop pestering and spying on one another and to get their work done. Behaviour which someone duly reported to Bird, adding to his sense of imminent threat. Toasty as fuck. Balkan correctly perceived Bird's walk and talk attempts to maintain contact with his men as opportunities to manipulate the dynamics of the expedition, and the two men came to loggerheads over Bird's interventions among the aircraft mechanics. Bell confronted Bird about the matter and stated that he couldn't have the men in his charge working past one another and around him to fulfil the spying mandate Bird independently assigned to Benny Roth and Walter Damas. Through the winter, Little America's XO, Larry Gould, planned his geological survey of the Queen Maud Mountains. With the two remaining aircraft earmarked exclusively for the pole flight and its support, he based his plans around those made by Amundsen in 1911 facing the same challenges with the same technology. The same, that is, once Sphera Strom modified the heavy sledges found so cumbersome on the summer sledging runs in an echo of the work done by Olaf Bjarland in Framheim in the 1912 winter. In the same space. I really need to work on my sentence structure so that I don't leave those hanging participles. Austrian-born Czech machinist Steger, Steger. It's spelt C-Z-E-G-A, Steger, made new cookers in his workshop from the materials he selected in New York, the store-bought ones proving heavy and explosive out on the barrier, 
both dubious properties in life-critical equipment. On the anniversary of the North Pole flight, the Little Americans hosted a turkey dinner in Bird's honour, with special guest status applied to the 14 Little America residents who'd taken part in the expedition or the Atlantic crossing. Dr. Komen released some of the medicinal alcohol supply and mixed it with lemon powder, making a powerfully anti-scorbutic and intoxicating beverage called blowtorch. A spectacular and riotous drunken orgy is Harrison's description of the resulting party. Six men abstained, everyone else getting thoroughly pissed, passing out one by one, the final revellers falling over at 4am and most remaining in bed throughout the following day due to the sort of crippling Antarctic hangovers described by Nick Johnson in his interview with Modern Drunkard magazine. On the night watch, geophysicist Davies nearly died in the darkroom when he mistook the symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning for sustained hangings over, his life being saved when Bursey noticed a usually boisterous puppy housed in the darkroom wasn't bouncing off the walls to greet him. The puppy felt cold and barely breathed, so Bursey raised the alarm, Dr Komen arriving just in time to see Davies collapse and begin fitting. Bursey and Komen got both man and dog clear of the atmospheric threat, and both gradually revived while investigations revealed a snow-blocked ventilator as the source of the dangerous monoxidal build-up. The word went out, and anyone experiencing hangover symptoms, even if they'd been drinking heavily, thought to check the ventilators so as to not let everyone die in their sleep from an easily fixed issue of preventative maintenance. After the excitement, the carpenter, Charles Gould, broke into the locked storeroom and drew some catching up alcohol from the barrels therein, kicking off an attemptive, secretive but still noisy and violent boozy session in the Biltmore accommodations block. Those unwilling to participate in the illicit drinking called for quiet, receiving projectiles comprising everything not nailed down by their bootlegging compatriots. Sly grogging became a nightly ritual, and Paul Seipel, unable to sleep and constitutionally incapable of joining in, and I'm with the Boy Scout on that front, complained to Bird, who promised to put an end to the alcohol-fueled division developing in his winter quarters. But he found his authority didn't extend to curbing the newfound civil liberties among his civilian volunteer staff. Peer pressure wasn't about to fix what Bird couldn't control, and the increasingly belligerent and violent booze parties continued for three weeks until a particularly violent bout saw Chips Gould and his fellow instigator, golden child George Thorne, go to Bird, caps in hand, asking for absolution. Bird leapt on this opportunity to smooth things over without actually applying anything approaching leadership, and duly took the praise of his grateful penitence, eager to sing his magnanimous plaudits. Damas played a fairly blunt and obvious practical joke, with Bird's permission, one night, waking everyone with screams and shouts that the barrier was breaking up. He woke everyone and there was much fear and confusion for little payoff. Everyone had doubts about the stability of the ice beneath their habitations, but Owen was the particular target of Damas' lame-ass gag, as the journalist felt particularly frightened by the prospect of crevasses opening up and their camp heading out to sea. Damas, one of the worst slygroggers and a nasty, violent drunk, paid for his gag with the ire of everyone and the spectre of oft-voiced ambitions of comeuppance, causing him to jump at every noise for several subsequent weeks. By midwinter's day, everyone was getting pretty toasty, 
and nerves frayed as the tiny, inconsequential idiosyncrasies you find irritating in other people, mounted up in the minds of men who couldn't just get up and walk away from their fellow residents. People became depressed and insomniac. Chips Gould earned the nickname Horizontal because he didn't often leave his bed. Conversation dried up as people lost the ability to concentrate for long periods. Victor Chager found himself on the cusp of either murder or suicide, but Bird walked with him for several hours and talked him through the depressive crisis. The 4th of July saw the booze come out again, Bird being a slow learner in social matters, and all but the teetotalers and Gould, chagrined at how badly things got out of hand back in May, got roaringly drunk, Bird included. Gould, patrolling the site to ensure no one passed out and froze to death, helped carry his commander to his quarters while Bird slurred that on no account should anyone let Gould know how drunk he got, and that no one should tell his stupid little dog Igloo about his shameful behaviour. Extended drinking in Blubberheim saw the winter's most heated dispute come to a head. Scotsman Mulroy, much disliked for being pompous and for refusing shitsickle duty when he lost the Sunday poker match, admitted, under Smith's persistent questioning, that he lied about being a member of the Quiet Birdman, the Masonic-style society of aviators mentioned in episode 67. Mulroy got belligerent and McKinley, also a nasty drunk, goaded him. He took a swing at the photographer and the pent-up resentment of the whole group expressed itself on Mulroy in fist and boot form. Gould broke the Malay up and escorted Mulroy to his bunk, but Supply Officer Black, a former prize fighter, demanded Mulroy return to Blubberheim. Damas, up on Nightwatch, tried to intervene but received a casual thumping from Black, who then led the miserable Mulroy back to the Blubberheim ring, where Thorne took the one swing that put him on the mat. Everyone demanded Mulroy get up and fight, but he did the golem grovel until Gould rescued him once more, likely all that stood between Bird's clean slate with all men in good fettle and an expedition murder, something even the syphilitic vassal couldn't achieve in spite of his drunken, venereally diseased Teutonic belligerence. See episode 47. Once more, Alcohol devotees broke into the supply and continued the late night drinking, the party getting rowdy again. Bird fronted his men and asked that the thefts and the boozing cease, claiming he would rather ditch his plans to fly over the pole than see Americans descend into drunken dissolution. His imprecations didn't work. On July 12th, when the drinking was carrying on openly and contrary to his request, Bird ordered O'Brien to turn in. Feeling unfairly singled out, O'Brien refused. Bird was in a bind. In the Navy, such insubordination carried specific and immediate repercussions. But in a civilian setting, the fragility of his authority was brought home to him by a single ornery drunkard. Yeah, you can be on iced coffee if you want.
He couldn't fire men receiving no pay. He couldn't promise bonuses for compliance. Bird's response was a 22 o'clock curfew to be enforced by the Nightwatch and monitored by Damas, making Damas immensely unpopular but curbing the booze problem. The mutinous spark Bird saw in O'Brien spurred his ruminations about Owen and he spent days working up a 14-page document outlining how the expedition should conclude should anything happen to him, distributing it among his closest confidants. Bird felt certain that Owen sought to ruin his public reputation. The tension caused by Bird's insistence on censoring Owen's copy before it went out over the radio saw Owen and Bird at odds throughout the expedition, but I don't see any evidence to support Bird's accusations of disloyalty. I don't think Owen liked Bird, but I don't think he was seeking to sow the seeds of dissent among the men, and that his reporting on the expedition garnered him a pull at surprise demonstrates that he also had a vested interest in presenting Bird in as good a light as possible. The least kind thing he wrote about Bird after the expedition was a citation of Bird's secrecy and suspicious nature. Bird vigorously denied instructing the radio operators to not send anything Owen presented them without written permission from Bird, though Smith and Belkin contradict him on this matter. Owen was unpopular enough off his own bat. His small stature and crooked knee saw him exempted from a lot of strenuous work, and in a body of mostly young and vigorous men, this singled him out as a shirker and a general target for contempt. The pilots met regularly throughout the winter to discuss plans for the pole flight. The loss of the Fokker Universal altered the scheme substantially. Bird used the radio link to try to secure the donation of another large airframe that might be shipped down to them early in the season, but got no traction. The Fairchild couldn't match the Fokker's carrying capacity or range, and so couldn't fly in tandem with the Ford on its pole flight, and couldn't depot its way south in any rescue effort if something went wrong. So the aviators' minds turned to cutting down the scope for anything to go wrong. The loss of the Fokker ruled out any attempt to land at the pole to plant the flag, and flying 50 miles beyond the pole to ensure no one could question the feat was also ruled out. This one really is surreal. I'm at Grit Viken. Formerly pronounced as Grit Viken, formerly pronounced as Grit Viken in the series. Uh, there's a bunch of giant southern petrels feeding on the carcass of an elephant seal. And they're fighting and fussing at each other like there's not enough to go around. There's a huge pecking order. Oh, there's a huge giant southern petrel setting the pecking order. These birds are hilarious. That one's flapping across the water, propelling itself with its feet not, rather than its wings. The most unearthly sound coming out of them as they, as they announce their arrival.
The loss of the Fokker ruled out any attempt to land at the pole to plant the flag, and flying 50 miles beyond the pole to ensure no one could question the feat was also ruled out. Bird instructed Hilton Rayleigh by radio to seek an institute or government body that might oversee a second year of scientific studies at Little America. Bird didn't care much for science and felt no interest in presiding over a second consecutive year in Antarctica once his personal goals were kicked, but figured his legacy could be enhanced if his efforts at getting the American toehold on the continent could prove useful to anyone whose own achievements could only... Jeez, it's on for young and old. Could only add to his cachet. Unfortunately for Bird, no one showed any interest even before the Wall Street crash, which we'll come to in due course. In another hit to the New York Times exclusivity over the expedition, information from personal messages appended to radio transmissions, sent uncoded for distribution by ham radio networks, began showing up in Hearst's newspapers, and word came down from Pulitzer that Bird was on the hook to put an end to such leaks. Bird assigned a committee to determine how to stem the leaks without putting himself further on the back foot with his crew. Fortunately, the fuel shortage began to impose itself even, if, even on the generator used to run Bird's PR machinery. And besides newly implemented strictures on what personal messages could include, each man was also restricted to one message every two weeks. The first sunrise after the winter dark saw the alcohol come out once more and the resulting indoor football match someone thought was a good idea damaged almost everything and everyone in the mess. The illicit drinking club once more perceived this as license to piss it up for many more evenings and Bird looked to Ghoul to play the bad cop, the geologist duly reading the drinkers the riot act, Bird looking to Damas to do his loyal legion duty by dobbing in any further boozing. Bird gave the order to begin digging out the paths to regular surface work just as the weight of snow began buckling the roof of the mess. Chips Gould employing props to keep it from collapsing. It took 10 days to dig out and reassemble the Ford Trimotor. Mid-September saw the dog handlers take their teams outside to begin sledge training, while in California, the C.A. Larson and the James Clark Ross left port for Dunedin, carrying supplies and materials requested by radio through the winter for the city of New York to carry south. Additional dogs ordered from New Zealand sailed south aboard the whaler Cosmos. Birds seeking to make good on the numbers lost in fights to the death any time a dog managed to pull its stake. The presence of the Cosmos in the Ross Sea that season resulted from the record whale catch the previous austral summer, where previously two companies worked the Ross Sea whale population. The 1929-1930 summer saw five companies send factory ships and chasers into the Ross Quadrant. These birds are just the best. I love them. A quick post-voyage note to thank Webb Webster for giving me the nudge to try, once more, to monetize the series. Based on his contact, I set up a PayPal account that people such as Lucy and James have already contributed to helping with book purchases, hosting services, and most excitingly, kicking off a fund to get my son a berth with me the next time I go to sea. I don't give away much about my family online, other than that I have one. 
but he'll be old enough to satisfy my employer's minimums next season, and he's eager to see the places and wildlife I've told him so much about. For my part, I'll be immensely proud for him to see me operating in the context where I feel I shine brightest, and to meet the people I'm privileged to call my colleagues. I'm working on two new songs to complete the recordings promised to those generous listeners who helped me renew my STCW95 ticket last year. I'm so sorry this has taken so long, but I'm a slow songwriter, and I wanted some material less than five years old to include. I'm really pleased at how these numbers are shaping up. Kay, a great-niece of Sir Hubert Wilkins, recently got in touch after Jeff Maynard made her aware of the series, and she wrote of her downloading episodes referencing her great-uncle as a liberty. Anyone listening to my output is a privilege at this end, not a liberty at that end, and I'm grateful to everyone who's given the series their time. Anyone who's reached out to express their enthusiasm for that output made my day. That people are willing to put money in the hat takes me back to the best moments of busking and performing on stage, both games better suited to punters far younger than I am, so it's gratifying to feel that same frisson that I got any time a coin went kachink in my guitar case or any time a booking came in for a gig. The bonus in this situation is that there's no scope for a long day singing my guts out for a low take. No pub managers balking when it came time to pay the piper. And no one even coming close to throwing hot and steaming dog poo at me. Which is a story for another context. Saying hi to the bosun, Albert, who said a few kind words that made me feel better about myself than any performance review ever did in any previous job. I like the way you drive. Coming from someone who started fishing his own boat at the age of 13, and whose tight-knit team kept us safe around the ship and under the crane, that meant a lot to me. While my workmates joked that I needed the fainting couch in the moment, and my wife pretended to tickle my big head from across the room when I recounted it, Albert's few words and warm smile gave me confidence that I was holding my own among some heady company out in the Zodiacs. Take care and appreciate your coffee.